This is BVK for Ocean City Tourism, OCMD Streaming Audio. On March 11th, 2024, the title of the spot is STSA Leisure Summer. This is a 30-second composite stereo streaming audio mix. Get away with friends to the laid-back Maryland coast, where you can catch up while casting off and hang 10 while hanging out, where a day on board is never boring and full throttle is half the fun, where you can sink a putt, raise a glass, and there's always room for one more round. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at oceocean.com. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Let's talk about the holidays. I know it still seems early, although they are fast approaching, but you don't want to go through another holiday season taking closed mouth photos while everyone else is grinning ear to ear, do you? Well, getting a photo ready smile starts now, and it's easier than ever with clear aligners from Candid. Candid's aligners can help straighten your teeth faster than traditional wire braces. It takes just six months for the full treatment, although, again, you can start now. An experienced orthodontist who is licensed in your state creates a custom treatment plan, and then they show you a 3D preview so you can see how your teeth will look after you're done. Candid's aligners are comfortable, removable, and completely invisible. Candid ships aligners directly to you, so there's no hassle of going to an orthodontist office, and Candid costs 65% less than braces. And with each aligner purchased, Candid donates $25 to Smile Train, who bring safe, 100% free cleft lip and palate treatment to children around the globe. Get your photo-ready smile by the holidays. Go to candidco.com slash friends and use code friends to get $75 off. That's candidco.com slash friends and offer code friends for $75 off. Candidco.com, candidco.com slash friends and use offer code friends. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These. This episode's guest is Robert J. Lifton. He's a psychiatrist and writer who has studied and written about psychiatry and history and catastrophic events like Hiroshima, the Vietnam War, and the doctors that participated in Nazi experiments and death. And he's also been writing about Trump. Yes, there's a Venn diagram for you, huh? His book, Death in Life, Survivors of Hiroshima, won a National Book Award, and his most recent book is Losing Reality on Cults, Cultism, and the Mindset of Political and Religious Zealotry. I did not want that book to be as relevant as I feel it turned out to be. I have brought up that book and his writing in probably every conversation I've had about Trump in the past month. It turns out that an expert on cults seems to think that the people who follow Trump are cultists. But he has a lot of insights on what we should do about this. So please stay tuned for Robert J. Lifton. Welcome to the show. 
Thank you. So I found your book fascinating, and it has some fairly obvious connections to our current political state. But I actually wanted to hear from from you. This is a collection of some previous writings with some new material, and it has sections on China's cultural revolution and the psychology of Nazi doctors. And I am I just would like to hear from you. Why this book now for you? It's a book of the Trump era. The book is not primarily about Trump, but I don't think it would have been written without the Trump phenomenon. Trump's very existence and function raises the question of losing reality and uh, creates what I've now come to think of as something close to a national reality disorder. And this book is all about how people seek to own reality and what that does to us and how that impulse can come from many very different directions. Trump makes us think about it, uh, and one needs to get underneath it and some of its sources in order to understand something about Trump. So there are a few different examples in the book, a few different kinds of... Now, what is the word I should use? Just I, I think cultism is maybe the right one because it's not— Yes, exactly. Yeah, so cultism. There's a few different examples of different kinds of cultism. Like I said, including the Cultural Revolution, the Doomsday Cult in Japan, the Nazi doctors. When you first saw the Trump phenomenon beginning to happen, did you immediately think of any one of those things? Were you struck by something? Did you recall a specific— Example? When I first began to follow the Trump phenomenon, I was uncertain about where it stood in relation to these other issues. Because when you look at it at first, it seems the opposite of the effort to systematically control with an all consuming ideology every event of the past, present, and future. And that's what Chinese communism, for instance, in its thought reform or so-called brainwashing, and then in the Cultural Revolution, that's what they try to do. Trump doesn't do this. He has the opposite of an all-consuming ideology. He has no ideology. Uh, his perception is, as I say, solipsistic, meaning simply a product of his own self, having nothing to do with evidence and with others' observations. So he seemed the opposite. But then what I came to realize is that as different as he was from other efforts at totalism, he shared with them the impulse to own reality, to state reality, own it, and insist upon it, and see any other form or any questioning of his reality to be something to be attacked. And in that way, such a very different approach had parallels, disturbing ones, with these cultist or totalistic approaches. What's a parallel you can think of, like a, an example of, of the way Trumpism is like something that's happened in one of these other cultist examples? Well, for instance, uh, it's always the stated doctrine over person. So Trump declares a reality. Let's go back to his reality of 
Barack Obama not uh, not being, or I should say falsehood or lie, mm-hmm. Obama not being born in this country. It's not only stated, but for a long period of time, he insists that it be believed. And if it's not believed, he attacks the disbelief. That's similar to what the Chinese communists, a completely different group from a, uh, a geographical other side of the world and with a totally different political background, uh, they also impose a reality and anybody who doesn't believe the reality is felt to be in some way wrong or troubled or psychologically or politically disturbed. So the false reality can be presented, and then it's doctrine over person. Those who resist or question the falsehood are thought to be the problem rather than the falsehood itself. And that's a, a, a very close parallel and resemblance. One of the more interesting pieces of the book to me was that although you do talk about the leaders of these cults, these gurus, you also do a lot of research and have a lot of insight into the people that join these organizations or movements or whatever you want to call them, the people who are swept up by them. And to me, that's actually maybe was even more helpful than trying to understand Trump personally, was trying to think about why is it that it's his lack of an ideology, his lack of some of the normal guru qualities have been so powerful. Yes, one has to consider the people he attracts. And that's where I began to think of a cultist element in Trump. Of course, you can see superficial manifestations of it in the back and forth between him and his large audiences. We'll build the wall. Who'll build the wall? Who'll pay for it? It's a kind of pseudo-religious chant. But these people, or at least a core of them, we can assume give themselves over to Trump as followers do to a guru. And they see in the guru a representative of their noblest impulses, uh, someone who finally takes them into a version of truth or even a sacred area. That's the way followers behave, and that's the impression they give to us in following Trump. But then I began to think about that and my work on other cultist groups like Om Shinrikyo, the fanatical Japanese cult whose members uh, released sarin gas into Tokyo subway stations uh, in 1995. And an interesting phenomenon took place there once the guru was, you might say, de-guruized when he was thrown into prison and recognized as a criminal in terms of what he did and what he ordered, many of his closest disciples who had expressed nothing but worship for him began to denounce him as a fraud, a false guru, a criminal. And that can happen, I think, more quickly than we realize because so much of the followers Self and psyche has been invested in the guru, and when he can, he or she can no longer carry through and meet those needs 
of the followers, they can be profoundly resentful, more so than others who have never had anything to do with him. We just see moments or inklings of this. It hasn't happened on a large scale, but it only needs to happen to a considerable degree for there to be unleashed another dimension of opposition in a very powerful way, opposition to Trump. Oh, man, I hope you're right. But it's funny. Like, I was actually reading your book, and of course, like, the Trumpism is unfolding all around us constantly, right? And at this particular moment, Trump is caught in this uh, Syria, Kurds, Turkey, um, I don't know how to put it. He's created an atrocity, right? And he's also gone against conservative or Republican. um, Historically, what conservatives and Republicans have advocated for, which is like to work with the Kurds to protect them, et cetera, and not to empower either Russia or Turkey or Assad. And I think a lot of people were thinking, oh, this this might be it, right? And... From reading your book, I felt like I I could see that it it also, (laughs) there's also such a good chance it won't be because I started to see the examples in your book as all, when when cult members dig into their position in the cult, dig into that ideology, there's almost like this psychological version of the sunk cost fallacy. Like they're so embedded, they can't quit now. You know what I mean? Well, that... That does happen, and uh, yes, and there have been, of course, a series of transgressions that have been revealed as very dangerous and false in connection with each of which we thought this will be the moment when the Republicans peel off him and stop supporting him and facilitating him, and it hasn't happened. But having said that, there has been accruing Mm. a sense of Trump as a dangerous transgressor so that the polls, as you know, show increasing support for some kind of impeachment procedure and even impeachment itself. All this has, uh, even though the Republicans should, by any standards of morality and integrity, they should have long renounced him, Nonetheless, it doesn't mean that they will never renounce him because they will start to renounce him when he doesn't serve their interests, even if we leave morality out of it. And that can come fairly soon. Where It's hard to predict things on the basis of how they are now. How they are now, as you say, is very disappointing because you'd think that this really traitorous behavior in Syria would lead to a wholesale condemnation of him by his former supporters, and it hasn't. Nonetheless, we're in a a dynamic that changes every day, and in that dynamic, he's losing ground. There's a sense he's in his endgame, although terrible, terrible damage can be done in the process of his being removed. So, Uh, I think the dynamic will continue. There will continue to build evidence against him that increasing numbers of people can recognize uh, and in the process recognize his danger. And there will be elements and uh, impulses to remove him. 
It's possible that this will all happen and then there'll be an election. It's possible that he will be removed before the election, in which if enough damning evidence were built against him and he were in a situation that was close to hopeless, even without formal impeachment, it's mm-hmm. not impossible that he could resign mm-hmm. and claim victory and uh, seek to have some kind of pardon from his criminal offenses. Uh, any of these things could happen. And with a, a dynamic that's constantly in motion, one can't judge things by the way they are right now. You know, my previous book was called The Climate Swerve. Mm-hmm. And swerve is an idea that comes as far back as Lucretius of shifts first in particles, and then, as it was used for shifts in general social consciousness that may come suddenly and unexpectedly, but change the worldview of large numbers of people, that has happened in relation to climate, in which a great majority now recognizes truths about climate change. And it may be happening in relationship to the malignant normality, as I call it, of Trump, built of lies and falsehoods and the increasing recognition of his criminal behavior. It can change very rapidly. Rothy's is a longtime sponsor of this show, and I do wear Rothy's. In fact, I wear Rothy's and I bought them, like with my own money. I think I've said this before. They're incredibly comfortable and also they're washable. And maybe that shouldn't be a big deal. But if you're as messy as I am occasionally, it is. They have new booties out this season. They're kind of like a Chelsea boot, and they're made of wool. And actually, maybe I can pull some strings because they're sold out of my size right now. And I would really like a pair. And that gets me to maybe what's most important about this particular ad, which is if you like a pair of Rothy's, you should go on their site and order it right now because they come out with new styles all the time, and they're always kind of a limited run. How else can I describe Rothy's? Well, they're most famous for their flat, uh, which is the preferred shoe of protesters everywhere, of elegantly styled protesters everywhere. They come in an ever-arranging array of colors, prints, and patterns. They're available in a range of styles, sneakers, loafers, points, and more. They launch new colors and patterns every few weeks. Like I said, they sell out constantly. One Yahoo editor recently called them the most comfortable flats I've ever owned, Plus, Rothy's always comes with free shipping, free returns, and exchanges. No risk, no worries, no reason not to try. And like I said, they're fully machine washable. Every time you need to refresh them, you simply toss them in the washing machine. It's like getting a fresh pair of shoes every laundry day. Rothy's own and operate their manufacturing workshop where they prioritize sustainability every step of the way. Plus, Rothy's ship directly in their shoebox. There's no unnecessary packaging. These are feel-good flats in more ways than one. You'll quickly discover why BuzzFeed called them their forever shoes. Check out the amazing styles available right now at rothys.com slash WFLT, not friends, WFLT. Go to rothys, R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash WFLT to get your new favorite flats. Comfort, style, sustainability. These are the shoes you've been waiting for. We all know how important it is to eat healthy, but the reality is nine out of 10 people don't eat enough fruits and veggies. I am one of those nine out of 10. I actually eat a lot of fruit. I love fruit. I love apples, bananas, oranges, pears. I'll stop naming fruit now. 
I have a harder time getting vegetables into my diet. And this is something that I, I have a personal trainer and my personal trainer has been on me about for a while. And then I showed her, this is a new sponsor, your super. And I was like, will this help? It's superfood, uh, you know, powdered uh, supplements. And she's like a supernatural person. Like she doesn't really like using creatine or any of those other things that like other trainers might recommend. She's very into like the, well, she's into CBD oil and she's into like mushrooms, not the magic kind, just the healthy kind. And I showed her your super and she was like, this is good. Yes. Now she still wants me to eat more kale, but I've been using your supers. I, I don't like the name of it. It's called skinny protein. We don't want to reify body image, but it is uh, one of their highest protein-packed and nutrient-packed mixes. It has like spirulina powder and algae, things that sound kind of disgusting and taste very green. I've been using it in smoothies and I can say maybe it's one of the many other things that I've been doing to feel better, but I do feel better. So Michael and Crystal are founders of Your Super, and they discovered firsthand how important nutrition is to health. They're both professional tennis players. They were happy, healthy, active on and off the court. Michael was diagnosed with cancer. Crystal started making superfood mixes to help him rebuild his immune system. I want to be very careful here. They're not saying anything here cures cancer. They're saying that superfoods you know, boost your immune system. And that's just true. So the impact that superfoods had on their lives encouraged them to start this brand. And now your super is on a mission to improve people's health with the power of super plants. They make it easy for you to get nutrients to your body that it needs to thrive. Now, uh, they have other mixes besides skinny protein. Um, there's a chocolate lover's mix. There's like a collagen mix for people that want to do like a skin health routine. I have been sticking with skinny protein you can pick yours out at your super that is y-o-u-r-s-u-p-e-r.com and you will get 15 percent off if you use the offer code friends that's your super offer code friends for 15 percent off this is a big year the ohio lottery's golden anniversary 50 years of excitement of growing jackpots and crossed fingers 50 years of funding for schools of changed lives and brightened days 50 years of fun and that is worth celebrating so watch for can't miss promotions huge events and new games that will make the ohio lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet learn more at funturns50.com Something you say a few times in the book is that those who get caught up in cultism is that they don't necessarily have what we would recognize sort of independently or individually as extreme beliefs in and of themselves. I will, I will read one of the things you wrote. Participation in mass murder need not require emotions as extreme or demonic as would seem appropriate for such a malignant project. And that might be one of the most terrifying insights in the book, because to me, what you're saying is almost is anyone could want could find themselves caught up in one of these things, that this normalization of brutality or this malignant normalcy, the effect that it has is that people who we would, you know, <laughs> not recognize in, in necessarily a single interpersonal interaction as evil are doing evil things. Well, yes. I've 
been concerned a lot about evil, and in my work on Nazi doctors, I talked about socialization to evil or adaptation to evil. The people in Om Shinrikyo, that fanatical Japanese cult, um, uh, were seekers. Some were undergraduates or recent graduates of universities. Some were scientists. They were seeking some kind of spiritual truth, and the guru came to represent that spiritual truth, and therefore could convey a version of malignant normality that they could become part of. It's very hard to kill very large numbers of people, except with a claim to virtue. So even the Nazis saw themselves as aiding the world in general by strengthening the Nordic race, which was a culture-creating race, and getting rid of the, quotes, Jewish race, which was a culture-destroying race. In that sense, a true Nazi believer could believe that he or she was contributing to the world and to the good in the world. And then the other dimension of what we're talking about has to do with the technology of killing. There's not so much about that in this book, but I've written a lot about how, yes, one doesn't have to have strong emotions condemning one's victims. One can simply be related to a technology that would eliminate them. When we Americans dropped the first two atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, there wasn't necessarily on the part of the scientists or or the military people who contributed to making them a hatred for the Japanese. It was rather a desire to end and win a war with no feelings in particular necessarily about the opponent. But the technology constantly distances those who are involved in the killing. Uh, And it doesn't have to be nuclear. It can be other forms of killing. But the technology of killing undergoes a revolution in the 20th century that makes it easier for the killer to do his or her work of killing without necessarily having any particularly strong emotions. In fact, being distanced from emotions by the very technology. That said, we are becoming a little more knowledgeable about that kind of technology and what it can do. And we also are becoming a bit more knowledgeable about cultism and extremism in various ways and how uh, a malignant kind of normality can entrap ordinary people no better or worse than you or me in connection with a very destructive or even murderous project. These are unhappy realities uh, of human behavior, I believe, and our only or best way of combating them is to recognize them and to take steps that prevent these ideologies that ensnare people uh, and and create gurus and, and followers and also restrain the most destructive technological sources of killing, such as nuclear weapons and other high-dimension weapons that are almost as murderous. And a lot of my work has been uh, in the service of these two efforts. 
I feel like there's sort of an important insight in what you just said about dealing with Trumpists. And not to say that they are involved in murderous projects, although one, there are sort of arguments about the border and about different kinds of extremism that you could make and the violence he incites, whatever. But what I think I want to focus on is I think it's easy for those who oppose Trump and what he stands for to look at pictures of his rallies and see a kind of gleeful hatred in the eyes of the people who are cheering for him. And perhaps there is some of that, you know, uh, hating on people can be a kind of high, right? Like that extreme emotion can, if you rile it up, it can feel very good. But I also think it's important to recognize that these people in their everyday lives probably, from what I understand from what you're saying and in my own experience, think of what they're doing as forwarding a virtue. Absolutely. They believe that they are they are serving humanity, serving the United States. They firmly believe that they are helping their fellows, right? They do. Yeah. They, they absolutely do. And at those rallies, when you observe them, participants, the most hardcore participants, can themselves experience high states, what can be called the experience of transcendence. They can feel that they are carried away by what Trump represents because there's something so powerful. It can include hatred or for some less so, but there's something powerful and evenly, uh, even more than natural, supernatural almost, in what he offers. And that's what a, that's the kind of feeling that a guru can implant in potential followers. And the rewarding nature of such high states is uh, misunderstood, I think, and underestimated. In a culture like our own, which is, which becomes so technicized, uh, we have structures and order in our work environments, and we work a lot with technology or in terms of the technology uh, that dominates our situation. And in that kind of society, there's a hunger for transcendence, for some spiritual high that takes one out of everyday banalities. And the Trump experience at rallies and in relation to him as a guru can do that and has done that. Now, at least some of those followers, and it's very hard to know how many or in what way, but at least some of those followers have manifested some doubts about mm -hmm. the guru. Is he really sacred in what he represents? Uh, does it really represent my interests and feelings as a follower? But one has to emphasize, as you're pointing out, these high states and what he offers them and how he can be seen as a breakout from un, uh, ordinary behavior that's useless to them and that leaves them out of, in their judgment, the American equation, or at least of a changing America that is not to their liking, with more minorities and more questioning of what they took to be white uh, Christian truths. Yeah. 
I think you've gotten us to a place that I definitely wanted to um, bring up, which is how, so what do we do? This so what do we do question. And I, I also feel like you're, you, you've mentioned something that maybe it's just a hard truth, which is that you, you can't do much and there's no way to predict the thing that will start to cleave a believer away from cultist beliefs. But you must have some idea or suspicion about what that process looks like. Yes. And I guess one of my questions is that can it happen at all because of something someone else does on the outside? My suspicion is actually no, but I'd be, I would love to learn otherwise. What do you mean on the outside? You mean uh, uh, outside of the whole Trump phenomenon? No, I mean like because people always so – one of the things that happens – on this show a lot, or, or people who listen to it, I get asked a lot, like about you know, my Trump relatives. How can I, right. how can I undo this? How can I convince them that they're wrong? And I have to say, my experience, I actually look to my experience as a recovering alcoholic to tell people you can't. It's like being an addict, and that they have to find their own bottom, right? But I would be, I would love to hear that that is an incorrect analysis. You know, my philosophy in all this is that everything counts. One doesn't know what will suddenly alter the general consciousness, the appearance of a couple of whistleblowers Mm. and of other informants from within the administration, for instance, has meant a very great deal in the last few weeks. Uh, And there will be increasing defections and questionings, as you say, from within the Trump movement. Where I agree with you is it isn't a matter of simple persuasion uh, because I am more rational and Trump is irrational. Why don't you listen to my logic? (laughs) Because it's uh, it's not about logic as such. It's about identity and worldview and uh, ideas about what represents what one feels to be truth or uh, to be uh, virtue, however the rest of us may disagree with it. Uh, And I'm, since my book came out, I'm thinking a lot about the general level of reality, which has been so impaired, uh, what I call something close to a reality disorder all through the society. And the impeachment process has the virtue of confronting that near-reality disorder in the society and insisting on reality. So the recovery process or the partial recovery process, because it's only going to be partial, uh, depends upon people holding to institutional norms and realities in our society. It also depends upon unexpected voices. Uh, My book and books uh, are a small attempt to lay this out, and in the hope that, not that they get to the eyes of those who are doing the dirty work, but rather that they contribute to the general collective consciousness uh, in combating this uh, loss of reality. And it's always a little unclear, as we're agreeing, just where the significant steps come from. 
but they're more likely to come in general if everyone works at his or her last in relation to reality and in relation to transgressions of humane behavior. So who knows where it will come from? It needs a a locus of power, and to some extent that exists in Congress now, uh, although it's you know, <laughs> far from dominant, and it uh, it ebbs and flows. Right. But there is a locus of power in Congress that can't be entirely ignored. And then there's a dynamic, as I mentioned before, that occurs, which all of us have to contribute to, uh, with a with an idea that everything counts. What I hear in that is that the role that an individual person can play you know, isn't so much about trying to convince your, you know, that Trump supporting uncle that he's wrong, but rather in your everyday life, just never lose sight of of reality and to perhaps, you know, in your social group, in, in whatever way you can, call out the falsehoods. Just remember that that is always important, right? That we can't get so numb to them, yes, that we just let yes. them slide by. In earlier work, I used the term, have continued to use it all through my work, psychic numbing. And I see this as occurring in relation to all sorts of dubious behavior and a state of mind which, on the part of large numbers of people, allows transgressions of a terrible kind to occur. But as one seeks in one's individual life uh, to uh, confront reality, uh, one is never completely alone. There are groups all over, professional groups, uh, uh, religious groups, educational groups, and they're all having some kind of say. It's a, a mess of confusion, no doubt about it, and nobody has done more to... Uh, further that confusion than Trump and his Republican followers or uh, colleagues. Uh, but there are also groups in all these areas or uh, elements of life that have a different and increasingly critical perspective on Trump. And I think he's had a certain magic uh, for dubious groups and for groups of followers that is diminishing. Mm. His magic is diminishing as people come to recognize that he can't carry them to sacred ground, that something is faltering. Mm. And we don't know whether or how much what we do has influence, but we must do it uh, and do it collectively. Can you describe your style in one word? Simple, sophisticated, adventurous. I actually have trouble describing my style in one word. I'm impressed if you can describe yours in one word. But that's why I love Stitch Fix. It is my favorite subscription service for clothes. And it doesn't rely on you telling them um, what you think your style is. They actually have a, a multiple quizzes that you can take online anytime you want, where you just like click the piece of clothing that you like. And they do an amazing job of selecting clothes for you. I mean, an actual human does it in addition to whatever nasty 
NASA algorithm they're using. I know that they've done, I mean, it's not 100%. I don't keep every single thing that they send me, but I keep a lot of it. And sometimes it's stuff that I wouldn't necessarily have picked for myself. Um, they they push me just a little bit. Um, this past uh, summer, it was a lot of cropped flares, which I refuse to believe could actually be in style or look good on me. But both of those things happen to be true. The last Stitch Fix I got had just tons of cozy sweaters, which that's kind of easy to to think that people would like those. Um, but I I love them. I'm wearing one right now. I highly encourage you to at least try out Stitch Fix. They've been a longtime sponsor of the show. I have been a customer of theirs for even longer. There's no actual subscription required. You can just get one whenever you want. You can get automatic shipments or just the new pieces on demand. Shipping, exchanges, and returns are always free. And while there is a $20 styling fee, it is applied to any purchases that you make. Discover new styles, find unique pieces, get stuff that's picked out exactly for you with Stitch Fix. Get started today at stitchfix.com slash friends, and you will get an extra 25% off when you keep everything in your box. That's stitchfix.com slash friends. You know, you've you've come to a place again that you do in the book a lot and in the conclusion, which is you wind up ending on a mostly optimistic note about a lot of these things. I will quote the end of the book. Cultist attacks on social institutions will not go away, but neither will our capacity for openness and truth-telling as alternatives. And I just have to wonder, you're someone who has seen literally the worst in humanity. Like, you have interviewed Nazi doctors, which I think count as some of committing the most evil acts that we know of in this moment in history. Yes. How is it that you were able to remain what seems to me like fairly optimistic about we humans? From the beginning, when people ask me what my work is about, I've said, It's about Holocaust and transformation, Holocaust with a small h, large-scale killing. But the transformation is an important aspect of things. So in each of those studies, uh, I've sought out uh, the most destructive and even murderous behavior or the efforts to own reality, uh, as in these cultist tendencies. But I've also sought out expressions of opposition to it or alternatives. And the very study of these events is a statement that there are alternatives, and I see them wherever they exist. Even in the case of Nazi doctors, there were inmate doctors in Auschwitz, many of whom I interviewed, who remained healers when they were permitted to have a few aspirins and little else during the last year of Auschwitz's existence in helping fellow prisoners. And they conveyed humane feelings that offered a little heartening that enabled some people to survive or help them to survive. I reject the idea that we are, as some people express it, wired in an evolutionary sense for killing and uh, for self-destruction of our race because 
we have this great evolutionary achievement, the human mind, which can go either way. Uh, the human mind can write an exquisite Mozart sonata, or it can create an ideology that says the world can only be benefited by the Nordic race killing members of the Jewish race and thereby heal Germany and the world. Uh, the same human mind can go either way. And we have the option, the opportunity to press for life-enhancing possibilities. I describe this as hope more than optimism. Mm. The, you know, optimism is a, almost like a guarantee. Hope is a possibility. And uh, it's a possibility of doing this because I don't think our wiring is to the contrary. And we see evidence of it happening before us side by side with the most dangerous kind of tendencies. So that's the way I kind of see these things. Uh, and uh, I think the hope is limitedly, but importantly, being expressed right now. You know, that, that seems like a wonderful note to end on. I really appreciate your time and your work. I know in your book we didn't quite get to, to this concept, but you are, in fact, doing it as we speak, which is this idea of professional witnessing. Yes, witnessing professionals, yes. Yeah. That's very important. Uh, that's a... That's an ethic that I think we professionals and others have to take on going beyond the niceties of behavior in our professional ethics now to a concern with the uh, fate of the entire human species and other species too. Yes, when you put it that way, little things like the Goldwater Rule or in my case like journalistic um, neutrality don't seem so important. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, there, there are others in the other considerations in the hierarchy of importance and necessity I feel strongly about. And uh, I think we have to all keep at it and not lose hope despite the really terrible directions that we can see happen in our country and uh, in its political behavior. It's not the end of things, and Trump will pass, and we'll uh, carry on, however uh, faultily, in what happens next. You have given me so much to think about, and this has been so interesting. I, I wish you um, luck in getting the word out, and hopefully maybe we'll talk in, talk in a few years and everything will be different. Maybe you'll... <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. And I, too, have enjoyed our talk. All right. Thank you so much. So I am probably as surprised as you are that Robert Lifton was able to offer so much, as he put it, hope rather than optimism. And I'm also very grateful. And it feels like it's plucked a chord of some kind for him to have phrased it that way specifically, hope rather than optimism. I do some service work in connection with my 12-step program, and one of the things that I do is uh, talk to groups of, of newly recovered women about hope. And actually, one of the things I say 
every time I talk is that there's a difference between hope and optimism. Because I think active alcoholics and addicts are some of the most optimistic people in the world because we always think it's going to be different. You're going to take this drink, going to buy these drugs, and the thing that has always happened before will not happen again. I won't get caught. Um, the money will last. Uh, the you know My work will be fine. We live in a state of constant optimism, really. And yet we are often very hopeless because I think hope comes from a different place than optimism. Hope has more to do with faith than specific outcomes. To me, optimism is about wanting a specific thing to happen. I will not get caught. This time uh, I won't black out. Sorry to keep relating this to, to using, but that's where it goes for me. Whereas hope is about moving forward into the future and trusting that things will work out without knowing exactly how. And that is very much the definition of faith. Faith in something. I personally have the person I choose to call God, being I choose to call God. But I think if you are hopeful, you have something. You have faith, whether you choose to think of it as faith or not. And faith is how we move forward. Take care of yourselves. This is BVK for Ocean City Tourism. OCMD streaming audio. On March 11th, 2024, the title of the spot is STSA Leisure Summer. This is a 30-second composite stereo streaming audio mix. Get away with friends to the laid-back Maryland coast, where you can catch up while casting off and hang 10 while hanging out, where a day on board is never boring and full throttle is half the fun where you can sink a putt, raise a glass, and there's always room for one more round. Ocean City, Maryland. Somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at oceocean.com. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.